0: Okay, ready? I'm Brendan Madigan, and this is Afterglow, a mountain storytelling podcast that travels deep into the heart, mind, and soul of world-renowned adventure athletes. I sat down with Red Bull athlete J.T. Holmes in the fall of 2018. I knew J.T. would make a fascinating guest, and he definitely did not disappoint. JT is well known for an illustrious career in free skiing. Influenced by skiing icon Shane McConkie, JT would go on to carve out a profession on the extreme terrain of Squaw Valley and compete on the Freeride World Tour. However, JT is perhaps even more famous for his pioneering role in high-flying aerial sports, including both ski-based jumping and speed flying. These passions have given him the ultimate athletic fulfillment, but have also taken the lives of two of his closest friends. He's one of the most progressive adventure athletes in the world, and I hope you enjoy a fascinating glimpse into what makes someone like JT tick.
1: Dad is a, my dad is an a orthopedic surgeon. Yeah, but he races trucks. He races trucks.
0: Uh, That's quite the juxtaposition.
1: A, yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, the truck racing is generally pretty safe because you have a roll cage and fire suit and helmet and everything. Right. It's also kind of nice because him getting a bit older, he's not riding dirt bikes, he's not riding uh, snowmobiles, and he doesn't ski anymore. So it's something we can still do together.
0: That's cool. How old yeah. is he?
1: He's 66, but, you know, he was kind of hard on his body over the years, so right. I think he's kind of, he just got a total hip and a total knee and another knee right replacements, so.
0: But that sounds like it's a pretty good template to learn from growing up. What? Just a dad who's doing stuff. Yeah,
1: yeah, he was a great skier and enjoyed helicopter skiing and skiing squawk diehard yeah. weekend skier, you know?
0: Right, yeah. It sounds like you were in a Warren Miller film when you were still in... I was high, 15, high yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. How did being a professional that young influence you?
1: I mean, it was my dream, obviously, to be a pro skier. And uh, that was kind of the first time that I had a little glimmer of hope that, hey, maybe this is going to work out um, mm-hmm. because I was 15 and got a phone call from Warren Miller. And it was a dream come true. At that point, though, it was really kind of a one-off. It wasn't, I, I, w- I wouldn't say I was pro at that time. You know, I got free ski poles from Scott USA. That's it. All right. Um, but the next couple of years is when it all kind of started coming together right yeah well, I was still in high school and um, got a K2 sponsorship and that happened in a kind of a cool way I was skiing in a in my shirt and tie and sweater which was uniform uh-huh and it from was the from the academy Squaw Valley Academy yeah. and it was kind of a rainy day but kind of sunny day you know those California days that can't make up their mind and I was really pissed off at a teacher and i was venting by skiing really aggressively and uh and then i was i hitchhiked home i was just skiing kt laps and i hitchhiked home or back to the dormitory and this guy who was really kind of inquisitive on the ride home and then he asked me what i what my deal was for skis and i just said well my skis are in the back of the truck I'll, i'll just grab them and be on my way right he said no what's what's your deal uh i I didn't know what he was talking about, but then he handed me his card and told me to call him on Monday. Uh-huh. And it said, Eric Olson, K2 skis. Nice. And so the next thing I knew, I had skis and t-shirts and stickers. And right. I was like, wow, jackpot.
0: And you were 18? I was 16. 16, wow. Yep. That must have been something. It was cool. And then still, when you're super young, you're in matchstick films, you're yep. competing on the world tour. Like be, doing that so young, what, what was its influence on you?
1: I, I I trace a lot of the good things in my life I've achieved back to my decisiveness at a young age, um, and that when I was fourteen, I decided I wanted to be a pro skier, and uh-huh. I, I just set about that goal with strategy and focus and conviction, and I didn't really give up till till it was coming together. Right. Um, not only developing my skills, but you know I was the kid who wrote letters in the computer lab and put an envelope, put a stamp on an envelope and sent them to sponsors.
0: Mm-hmm. So you're actively yeah. working. For yeah, it.
1: exactly. I think a lot of people have a misconception that just your performance will make, you know, their career happen. And that will happen in some cases eventually. But even though I was quite young, so it was, you know, kind of notable, my results and whatnot, I never was a champion. I never won a world tour or i never even won a major contest uh second third fourth fifth and it actually kind of was a white whale for me and i went back to competing in 2009 i went back to the free ride world tour and competed till 2012 um just trying to get that dang white whale Mm -hmm. and i never got it
0: right but it's it shows you perseverance
1: (laughs) yeah it does and i did win um gnarliest wipeout in free world tour history
0: (laughs) yeah i think i've seen that on video somewhere yeah yeah Yeah. Uh, but i want to go back to that so you're at 14 you're saying to yourself i'm going to be a professional skier was there was that was there an aha moment there or did you just there was an aha moment
1: yep i was skiing squaw valley with shane McConkey and jeff mckittrick Mm -hmm. and it was a tuesday and we decided we would ski the backside down the alpine meadows and get some powder, and then Jeff had some roommates that would drive us back to Squaw. Then we got in the car and drove back, uh, and they dropped me off at the dormitory. And I remember thinking, what's up with these guys? You know, they don't have jobs. They're just skiing the whole day away and and smoking dope and having fun. And I And I just said, I said, what do you guys do for work? And Jeff told me that he worked construction, and Shane looked at me with this grin, and he said, I'm a rock star pro skier, man. <laughs> and it was like he was letting me in on the world's greatest secret that mm-hmm. you know you could actually be a pro skier. And in my mind, I was skiing with them, and I could ski everything that they were skiing. And I just thought, well, if they can do it, I can do it. Right. You know, I would follow Shane down whatever because I just wanted to prove that I was on the level. Even if I wasn't, sometimes I'd get myself in
0: some predicaments, but I'd always ski my way out of them. Well, and if timing is everything in life, I mean, talk Mm -hmm. about favorable timing to hook up with an icon, right?
1: Sure, and you know, at the time he was, he was, uh, he had momentum with his professional skiing career. He'd won a um, a pro mogul contest at that point, and he this was only nineteen ninety five, so I was fourteen still at that point, and he um, had not yet won championships in extreme skiing that happened in like 97 and maybe maybe 95 that year I yeah. think he did win that year um, but he was on the up and up right I wouldn't have used the word icon yet at that point right that came steadily and later. what was fortuitous timing was that I came into the free skiing scene at a really explosive moment in the industry as in uh, fat skis were becoming popular. And with them, we could, we're could we redefining how steeps and how powder were skied, how any soft snow was skied. We had all this control that we didn't have in previous years with the skinny skis. There was That was a catalyst to performance within, within free skiing. And then there was also twin tip skis were just coming out. At the time, I was a pretty reasonable park skier. I could do some 720s and whatnot and, and some flips and at that time that was you know kind of eye-catching right. uh, whereas now it's it's it would, it would be so far down the totem pole as far as um skill level of tricks is concerned but what was interesting about the late 90s in free skiing was just that every year the movies would come out and things that seemed previously impossible were were becoming realized and uh it was it was just fun it was right. it was like Just this energy and momentum uh, was a really fun thing to be a part of. And I feel that I rode the coattails of a blossoming industry and that my timing really was impeccable.
0: Yeah, that's a cool perspective to be able to have that too. But I think, you know, whether it's friends here in Tahoe or, you know, people that I've been lucky enough to sit down with like yourself, I see that as a common thread in our lives where we've all had mentors and we've all had influential people so it's it's like a magical thing you know for sure and everyone has a cool perspective on who did it for them right and how did had how did the discovery of base jumping change that kind of extreme skiing trajectory?
1: One thing about base jumping is that it's really fun and it is hard to not want to just do that mm-hmm. I was very cognizant of not letting my uh, parachuting get in the way of my skiing career. If I was just waking up every day and going out to have as much fun as possible, I probably would have skied less days and you know maybe some sort of opportunities would have slipped through the cracks. Um, but Shane and I used to joke that we were using our ski careers to fund our base jumping habits. Mm-hmm. Then by combining the two, um, which happened pretty promptly for me, we were able to have fun base jumping by ski base jumping uh, in films. Right. So suddenly we were making our ski movie segments more interesting by skiing off 400 foot cliffs, and we were also just satisfying our craving to to be in the air and go base jumping and catch as much air as possible and go fast. So that was that was quite quite cool. And then the wingsuit came along in the mid 2000s, and well, I mean I started wingsuit flying in in 2002, and then the wingsuits were in their infancy, you could only purchase a, a wingsuit from a manufacturer for the first time in nineteen ninety nine. So the sport was really only three years old. When I got my first wingsuit, the wingsuiting became this thing that we we got into simply to go fast and catch as much air as possible and, you know, carve through the sky and, you know, the people who did it, they spoke French or they spoke Norwegian and it was wasn't like it is now. It was harder to find people because Facebook wasn't as popular, and you know you kind of had to actually use your own people skills and friends of friends, and you know we found the right people and and went out and, and learned from them, but all in the vein of just wanting to go fast and catch air. And then it it hit, you know, somewhere along the line the world caught notice of these squirrel suits, and uh, you know my phone started ringing, and it was a little bit different phone calls. You know it was 60 Minutes and it was Michael Bay, and mm-hmm. you know I was positioned kind of as the um you know one of the top north american performers in the wingsuit space
0: right but if i'm not mistaken a lot of that was under or at least um kind of initiated through your relationship friendship with shane right yeah we
1: learned the sport we were learning wingsuit stuff together yeah
0: yeah and i remember the first winter i spent here i lived in squaw and uh we were at the chamois for halloween and I didn't know anyone in Tahoe. Like, mm-hmm. Brand new, and and I walk up the stairs at the chamois and there's this dude sitting at the bar. He has like trench coat on. No one's really around him, you know, even though the bar's packed. Hindsight, it's Shane, mm-hmm. but he has his trench coat on, and he oh had, yeah, the flasher had, one. Yeah, he had sewn skin tone underwear with this huge penis. Yeah, <laughs> and he's just sitting at the bar like not talking to anyone. He's just fondling this thing. And I was like, wow, that, yeah. that dude is either it's crazy impressive. or, or a special, per, a special human, you know? Yeah. And they, and, and he was a little bit of both. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And was it, was the drive for, for that ski basing? Was it, you know, i I feel like I've, you know, read Shane talk about, you know, attaining that unattainable line and what was the, force driving that sport do you think
1: yeah we wanted to ski where nobody else could ski and we wanted to jump massive cliffs and not take the impact at the bottom yeah um it's kind of nice to you know to ski off a 500 foot cliff and you know you're getting more air time than you know the jamie pierres or julian cars and john tremans of the world but you're doing it safely right well you know you're doing it without impact
0: Right, hopefully, because they're just hug monkeying. Yeah. yeah, well, cliffs, um, no, they're. Right?
1: I mean, I I just throw out the names of the guys in the history of skiing that have jumped the biggest cliffs. Right, those guys are all record holders. Right, um, at one point or another.
0: Yeah, no, it's fascinating stuff. And then, and now in 2018, you've kind of it seems like made a somewhat of a transition, or at least spending a lot of time in that speed flying realm. Yes, can you? tell people who are listening kind of the difference between ski base and sure. Speed so
1: ski base jumping and speed riding are both skiing with parachutes. But the difference is that ski base jumping is you have a packed parachute and it's on your back and you ski off a cliff and you open the parachute. Speed riding is simultaneous use of your parachute and your skis so you lay the thing out behind you uh, and start skiing and it pops up and now you're you're navigating your skis and your parachute down the mountain and it's a far more efficient way to ski with a parachute speed riding is than speed than uh, ski base jumping and it's actually much safer because typically you launch your parachute in a area where If your launch doesn't go well, you're not going to die. You can just stop Mm -hmm. and try again. And then you have the moment to confirm that your parachute's good before you ski into the treacherous terrain, right? Before you ski off a Serac, before you go over a forest, over a cliff, anything like that, you have a good parachute. So if you think of it in somewhat binary terms, you have... You're standing there with your skis when you're about to go speed riding, and it pops up. You, you start skiing, it pops up. Now you have two things that are going to you sa- that can bring you to safety. You can ski your way to safety or you can fly your parachute to safety. After you've skied off of a cliff, now you're relying totally on the parachute, right? So you've gone from two to one, and then you land again, you're back to two. Ski base jumping, you are a skier, and you only have your skis. so you have one thing. That can bring you to safety. Then you ski off a cliff, and now you are no longer in a situation that you can ski yourself out of, and you also are not yet an in control parachutist. So you're at zero. You have zero safety. You've put all your eggs in the basket of transitioning to an in control parachutist by way of a parachute deployment. And that parachute deployment is slightly complicated because you have these skis on your feet, and if the skis get entangled in the parachute deployment, you're totally screwed. So you've gone from one to zero and after your parachute opens, you're back to one. So that's kind of the way I look at it is as why the, the speed riding is so much safer uh, and more efficient as well.
0: I'm interested to, to hear you speak of it as a lower consequence passion, you know, and sure. I'm, it's, I'm fascinated by it, and frankly, really impressed that you seem to be, um, you know, kind of on the progressive end of all of these you know sports in your career whether mm-hmm. they were established or right. you know in the case of the last two kind of progressive and that you've been able to stay there and stay safe and still be with us after doing it for what almost 20 years right mhm and that's that would be like several lifetimes of risk for many mm-hmm. many other people how how have you managed all of that just the risk factor the
1: risk factor i try to i, I I believe that I've developed a very objective risk analysis criteria that I operate by. Um, And I think that being a skier my whole life, you're accustomed to making decisions at high rates of speed, many decisions while you're going fast. So it's a really good basis to bring to higher risk activities. That said, when you take on a sport with such obviously dire consequences like base jumping, you really fine tune your risk analysis criteria because I can look down a mountain with my skis on and think to myself, I think I've got this. I'm 80% sure I can stick that landing, then I'll go for it. If it doesn't work out, there's a good chance that maybe I'm searching for my skis and maybe I'm brushing the snow out of the back of my neck, but I'm not hurt. And when you're base jumping, you have to be at that 99.5% sure all the time because if you're if you're unsure, you're being reckless. So what that did was it just it really kind of upped the, the game as far as how I dissected certain objectives that I had decided to take on. And um, when I say dissect, I mean you're you're just breaking down the objective uh, into individual, Checklists and tasks. You know, for instance, you're going to consider. All right, so let's take an example of a wingsuit flight. First off, you have to get yourself there and not be totally exhausted. So that comes down to like your mountaineering skills or your you know general mountain capabilities. Then you need to have a suitable cliff. Um, The wingsuit has what we call a start arc, so you're diving straight down first, and then you're gaining flight. And so your, um, your glide angle is increasing. Your horizontal trajectory is increasing, but you need to know that you can get the wingsuit started flying before the earth meets you. Um, so if you have a huge cliff like El Capitan or Half Dome, that's kind of irrelevant because you have so much time there, but on smaller cliffs on bigger and bigger mountains, you know, maybe it's only 500 feet. Um, so you need to get the thing started and then you need to know that you can achieve the glide angle to outfly the mountain and then open your parachute, have some room for that and then land there. Um, so each one of those is kind of a phase or a bullet point in like the checklist of, are you going to do this or not? And is it smart? And that's, that's kind of the risk analysis criteria. So it's pretty Um, analytical approach. Yeah. yeah, It's, but it's also quite simple. And I think everybody kind of uses things like that. But in, in the case of base jumping and wingsuit flying, you, you can't have any question marks there, you know, it's green light, red light. And if it's a yellow, you need to come to terms with that. Right. And, and you know, decide if you can, you know, if you can still do it or if you can walk down.
0: Yeah. Interesting too. And, I, and I'm always fascinated too, by, you know, a lot of folks that we oh. chat with have done amazing things in the mountains, really hard to sense or really amazing ski lines. But a lot of them will talk about the role that failure plays in that and how it's actually, for most high-end athletes, more instructional than, than the successes. Mm-hmm. Do you find that in these aerial pursuits, like you back off stuff? And...
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I've walked down plenty of times, and just chosen not to do certain objectives. You know, failure in airborne sports is often, is often death. So there's not, you can learn from other people's deaths, and we actually do that. And we have base jumping and speed flying and speed riding. They are a couple of the only sports that I'm aware of that have what's called a a fatality list. So anybody that dies goes on a list and it's chronicled what, you know, how it happened and what factors led to it and blah, blah, blah. And then you can go and read about why, why these things happened and, and hopefully not repeat these lessons that, you know, people learned the hard way.
0: Right. So it's an educational tool. Yeah. That's what,
1: that's the premise of it.
0: Right. At school, you're so proactive in, Continuing education, part of it.
1: Yeah, and a lot of times though, there's not really too much to learn because you know people just kind of make the same mistakes over and over, and you know break the the golden rules. And
0: why do you think that is? Is that an ego thing, or?
1: Uh, I think that it could be. Could I think there's some ego involved in the wingsuit and base fatalities for sure. I think that there's a skewed idea of norms and that. Extremely hardcore flying is, is considered normal now, and, and it's really, it shouldn't be. It it's, um, should be reserved for the elite experts. I also think that the wingsuits have become very easy to use. Airborne sports in general are quite easy, attainable. Yeah, it's, it's just, they're not difficult. It doesn't require balance or strength, which are two things that athletes typically have to rely on. You know, gravity is doing all the work, and gravity is also a very predictable thing it's a constant. It's one of the greatest constants we have uh, on the planet. So people are able to get into these sports and feel a lot of confidence with their wingsuits. But really, it's a situation like giving a 16-year-old a Ferrari. There's a lot of performance there, and there's a lot of there's really great breaks. It sure feels good, but it's not a recipe for success.
0: Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch as, you know, the Both genres gain popularity, you know. We see that with backcountry skiing, for instance. Mm -hmm. More people in the backcountry, more accidents, more need for education. more numbers. Yeah, Yeah, it's
1: a numbers thing. I think also there's a role that social media plays in in skewing the norms because you see all this radical flying. You know, guys are flying below the level of the trees for 45 seconds in a wingsuit flight. And that's what you see mostly. Because that's what's popular, and that's there's algorithms there that are pumping these videos into your newsfeed. Right, it's glamorized. Um, yeah, and you know it's not with any malicious intent, but it's just what you're kind of being fed. And when I got into wingsuit flying, like I said, it was a lot, much more obscure. Sure, there was some YouTube videos going on, but uh, that were very eye opening. Um, but it wasn't wasn't the same. If you tip it when you saw. You know, when you, when you found people that were flying wingsuits, the beta that you were getting was, was a lot more, in my opinion, real. And it was, uh, I guess, more conservative. And part of that, of course, is just that the bar gets raised naturally. But part of it, I think, uh, also is thats is that we're seeing, you know, you're seeing so much of this hardcore stuff um, that it seems normal.
0: Right. Do you feel, as you get older, do you feel a uh, responsibility to kind of educate and you know show the rad stuff that you're doing of course but also temper it with you know what you're saying here
1: and that's part of why i started the uh, basics program with high fives foundation Mm -hmm. um, because there was some accidents that were avoidable that you know that really sucks you know that when when there's a fatal accident that could have been avoided in some cases it's you can never eliminate all the risk so in some cases when someone's Dies, you think to yourself, "Oh, they did everything they could, and it's just part of the game, and that's the way we live our lives and whatnot." But sometimes, when things really should have been avoided, it's it's a tougher pill to swallow. And so, with the High Fives Basics program, we're just encouraging people to you know use their head at least just a little bit and just raise awareness for what you know reasonable learning curves are and what certain hazards are that you should be aware of when you're in the mountains.
0: Right. Not super commendable too, and it's a great program. We'll put we'll yeah. put it in the show notes for sure. And it seems the the aerial talents that you have have landed you some pretty rad Hollywood work. Yeah, and there's
1: been some some good ones. Yeah, I actually just finished a fun movie job um, with Lawrence Fishburne and Nicholas Cage. There's a there was a role in the movie that um, I kind of fit, and so I was able to do that. And I get to perform my craft while also being an actor. No oh, cool. Rather than stunt doubling for somebody else.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because in the past, you've stunt-doubled for like big movies. Yeah, I've
1: stunt-doubled for um, Transformers. Transformers 3, Fast and Furious 7. I was a cop in The Amazing Spider-Man 2 uh-huh. when I was driving. Godzilla. Done some, some big commercials. Coors Light and Nationwide Financial and Google and Apple and Dell. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, there's just been some... It's been a good run of, of really cool, bigger projects.
0: Are the professional projects different than the personal pursuits are they equally rewarding um
1: well arguably it's more rewarding to in some cases the work side because you have opportunities that you wouldn't be able to um you you have opportunities that you don't when you um are just going out having fun as in I probably wouldn't have jumped off North America's tallest skyscraper, the Willis Tower, which is more commonly known as the Sears Tower. In Chicago, I wouldn't have had that opportunity if it wasn't for work. And that was cool. It was right. nice to jump off there with a wingsuit and four friends.
0: And that was for Transformers? That was for Transformers. Yeah. Transformers 3, yeah.
1: And we also got the jump off the Trump Tower in Chicago. And we did nine jumps out of helicopters flying past skyscrapers in Chicago. So we really kind of stormed the castle there. And it was uh, it was good, good, clean fun.
0: Right. That's awesome. Yeah.
1: And then, you know, Fast and Furious, we're, I, w- I was a, I was a cameraman filming cars coming out of a C-130. And that was an interesting spectacle, um, watching cars smash into the earth and watching them come out of a giant airplane. and um, While the airplane is in the air. Yeah, the airplane is flying. Right. And I'm standing on the back. It's a drop-down door in the back. And I'm standing there with my heels off the edge, wearing a parachute and a really expensive camera on my head then the airplane which is going 110 knots or 120 miles an hour or something is uh, it tilts upward a little bit right and that rolls the cars out right at me and then i just step off at the very last possible moment and get the shot of these cars coming out of the airplane wild yeah it was cool that's super cool yeah and then you know they're all smashing into the desert and we're landing in the desert and picked up on dirt bikes. And right. You know, if you were a little kid yeah. thinking about what a cool job would be, I'd say that that qualifies, right? It's like a kid's dream you know, smashing stuff up in real life. And right. It's fun.
0: That's awesome. Can we talk about the Eiger? Sure. Um, and I definitely encourage everyone listening who hasn't checked out the 60 minutes footage to do that. Cause it's really compelling and eye-opening. But can you tell the listeners just exactly what the Eiger is and what was the motivation behind the project?
1: So the Eiger is a postcard mountain in Switzerland and it is very popular amongst climbers and mountaineers and also airborne sports enthusiasts. And part of the reason that it's popular and iconic is it's extremely highly visible Um, You have a lot of access to this mountain. There's trains at the base of the mountain. There's trains going through the mountain. There's chairlifts at the base of the mountain. There's helicopter bases everywhere. Villages are looking at it. Everything is kind of oriented so that your eyes are on the Eiger. Because of the access and the visibility, climbers have this opportunity to plan a route very thoroughly, and so do base jumpers um, or paragliders or any kind of airborne sports people. So Shane and I went there in 2004 and we skied off this mountain, but we landed a couple to you know, almost 3000 feet below the top of the mountain. And we skied only 400, maybe, maybe even just 300 vertical feet. And we skied off the edge of the cliff. It was a huge cliff, um, a thousand foot sheer piece of rock called the Geneva pillar. And we opened our parachutes within a couple hundred vertical feet after doing a flip or two. So while it was the highlight of our trip and it was amazing to ski off this iconic mountain with a parachute, we really only used a small portion of the mountain. And we thought to ourselves, geez, how could we use the whole mountain? And one thing you could do would be ski from the top, which is extremely hardcore. And people have died doing that many times, including just 10 days prior to when I finally pulled off my Iger descent but then I learned how to speed ride and I realized that if I speed ride off the top of the mountain I can use the whole mountain and our ski base jumping had evolved to the point where we were releasing our skis so as to free fall for longer distances so I decided that if I could speed ride from the top of the Iger deliver myself to about where Shane and I got out of the helicopter disconnect that speed ride wing parachute ski off the Geneva Pillar, and then instead of opening a parachute, disconnect my skis and fly my body for another 10 15 seconds of free fall, then suddenly I would be using the entire 6,000 foot face of the mountain um, by way of my three favorite sports. So it sounds very complicated, and it was, um, but essentially, the first half of the mountain I was speed riding, then I was skiing, and then I was base jumping. Um, and it took me many years to pull it off, partially because of my own skills and needing to develop uh, different cutaway systems for all this stuff I was going to litter on the mountain, and partially because the conditions on the Iger are very uh, very tough to catch at their prime. You get a lot of wind up there, so the wind takes the snow away from the edge of the cliff, and um, the sun also t- does the same thing, melts it back, um, and... Given that it's a, it's 6,000 feet, you know, you you have one condition at the top and another condition at the bottom. So it took me many years of trying to pull this off, and eventually uh, I had to just park myself there until it was done. My goal was to document it with 60 Minutes again because after our successful piece in 2009 called The Birdman, which it won a couple of Emmys for photography and whatnot, and it was a very popular piece, so they were excited to document kind of whatever was next with JT, whatever kind of big thing I was going to do next. And so I had to coordinate the mountain being at its prime with all these sports and all this equipment, you know, me being ready. Also with, you know, a celebrity correspondent that was going to come over and film it, Um, come over and document it. That was Anderson Cooper. Yeah. In this case, it was Anderson Cooper. And you know, in this case, this is a news program. So they're used to not being able to predict when things are going to go down, um, and reacting quickly. Um, so that worked out well. And I also was lucky because Anderson Cooper is a cool guy and he believed in the story and he essentially just, you know, after a couple times of, Hey, it's going to be next week. Oh no, it's not. Hey, it's going to be next week. Oh no, it's not. Um, he just said, Hey man, you know, short notice, give me 48 hours and you know, we'll be there. So that's essentially what happened. Right. Um, April 9th, 2015, the mountain was was right, and I made the call that they should fly over, and I pulled it off.
0: So, t- eleven years in the making. Yeah,
1: eleven years in the making. Sure, yeah. since the first time at the Tiger.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and just so I understand it, based on you know watching the footage myself, it's speed flying to ski turns to actual double backflip or double front flip. I care. Double backflip. Yeah. To. Yeah. Wingsuit and release the skis. Yeah.
1: Now, it wasn't actually a wingsuit. Okay. It was a, um, what we call a tracking suit, which it inflates and gives you more surface area, and it aids in horizontal trajectory, but it doesn't inhibit you like a wingsuit in that your arms are free. You know, I could put my hands straight up above my head. In a wingsuit, you only can move your arms only to about as high as your shoulders. Right. That is uh, an advantage... Because you're able to ski normally, um, and if things go wrong, like with your ski jettison system, your hands are not inhibited, and so you can, you know, solve problems and have full mobility. Um, Shane, when Shane crashed and died doing a wingsuit ski base jump, he was in a wingsuit, and that made it more of a struggle for him to reach down and release his skis. On my second jump off the Iger, I did not release my right ski properly, um, with the cutaway handle. Um, and I was able to just simply reach down and do it manually, which was something that I had practiced, uh, many times knowing that it could happen, uh, because it happened to my best friend and it cost him his life. So the news piece, um, accurately says that I, you know, struggled to release my ski and it said several agonizing seconds. Um, but in my perspective, I went to a well-rehearsed Plan B rather than a calamity-type emergency. That said, there wasn't a third run.
0: Right. I was going to say, I mean, one lap would be a career highlight yeah. for many lives over, but to rally for a second. That's true,
1: but, you know, anybody who's gone helicopter skiing will relate that you probably don't want to just do one run. Mm-hmm. And these are my three favorite sports, and I had a helicopter there, and the mountain was... At its prime, and I just wanted to go for another run. I was planning to do three runs. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: it just didn't work out. That right. Way. And I read that Anderson Cooper, who interviewed you during the the piece, said he didn't know if he got to the root cause of why you do what you do. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm just interested why Why do you think he would say that?
1: I think that he would say that because that's that's everyone's questions, and that's the question that, he, and you know, as a good journalist, he would want defined and answered properly. But um the fact of the matter is it's not deep for me. It's not there's no like there's no good answer. There's no significance beyond that I just like to have fun and I like to go fast and I like to catch air. That's just that's just all it is. And I obviously, you know, when you're doing high visibility projects there's an also there's an element of ego and uh dollars, you know. Sponsors are going to be happy when you're on the world's greatest news program. Um, that's a motivator. And um, it feels good to kind of like do something rad uh, with the world as your audience. And so that, you know, there's there's that ego side of it too. And I think a lot of uh, athletes, you know, they're kind of in denial about how much they let their ego or slash drive for fame and fortune motivate their their objectives. It's, uh, it's, it's definitely part of it.
0: Right. And it's an, it's yeah. an age old question, right? Yeah, it's it's got it. o-
1: and it's okay. Yeah. It's okay that that's a part of it. Yeah. It's part of the equation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there were decades in decades past, action sports athletes didn't have these carrots dangling in front of them, um, in the form of, Hey, this is a great career where you can make money and have tons of fun and achieve your life goals of say owning a house or, uh, a car, and you know there's there's pretty uh, lucrative careers out there now. So the carrot dangling there is pretty attractive, mm-hmm. um, and people are striving for
0: it. Right. Yeah. And I think most guests on this show um, would be classified as adrenaline junkies or cavalier risk takers by the general public, right? Mm-hmm. Not us that live in the mountains and kind mm-hmm. of do these things on for. You know as a core of who we are but aerial sports is like the easiest target for those folks right to label it as sure does it does it bother you when people put you in a box like that i think it's natural for
1: people to put me in a box like that and i don't really have time to be bothered by it um and i you know, have been I, I i'm in my interview with anderson cooper he asked me about the adrenaline junkie thing and i said i prefer adrenaline enthusiast Mm-hmm. because it is, um, an enthusiasm for, uh, the rush of going fast. Um, but it's not a junkie thing. Junkie has connotations of addiction. Right. And, um, I, you know, I consider myself addicted to the out of doors and not the risk as in, you know, I can be happy and, and, uh, comfortable and all that with my life walking up a mountain you know i just walk up the hill behind my house regularly and that's nice right i enjoy the views blah 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 i ride my bicycle to town instead of taking the car yeah. um and, you know that part is is uh that part's i guess an addiction part because i do notice that if i'm stuck indoors for a couple of days um I get, you know you get whatever you want to call it cabin fever or antsiness or right. whatever and you just you know you got to get your ya out
0: right yeah well it's just i think it's I think it's more for the folks that don't understand it. It's more the the sports are just a mechanism to be happy as people living in the mountains. Like that's what we love to do, whether it's hiking or these aerial sports. Mm-hmm. I think it's hard for people who don't live those lives to to have that perspective or understanding. So it's too easy to label it. I agree. Yeah, and we also talk, you know, at length in these shows um, about risk and you know as mountain people how we cope with that risk if it goes sideways right we've all mm-hmm. lost people i think you know you maybe more than others in heartbreaking fashion and mm-hmm. very close friends right um and i'm 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 interested in this topic because when when we lose a friend here people tend to well they say many things right but i think common themes that i've heard are they died doing what they loved but then also it's it's contradicted by others saying they, but look what they left behind, right? In mm-hmm. terms of their family or their spouse or their children. Curious on your, of your thoughts there.
1: Um, sure. In the mo- the original Point Break movie, Bodhi says, it's not tragic to die doing what you love. And he's wrong. It's very tragic to die doing what you love. It sucks uh, to die because you miss out on a whole bunch of great life. Um, as in, it really sucks that Shane isn't around to see his daughter, um, growing up and performing, you know, she does, I went to her, she did a play, she was a brave girl in Peter Pan, um, on Friday night, you know? And, uh, you know, I thought to myself, man, it sucks that Shane's not here to see this and here with his hot, rad wife and, um, he's missing out. And so it's, uh, there's just no two ways about it. It is, uh, definitely tragic to die doing what you love. I think that uh, well, the other you said that the that they say it's died doing what you love and and that look what they left behind. Yeah, it's just uh, there's you're just absolutely correct that it
0: it sucks and you miss out. Right, so oh. you're kind of in both schools because it it seems like people are one or the other. You know, all the you know like at Kip's memorial, for instance, everyone is you know everyone loved Kip and and Allison too, of course, and everyone's you know stoked that they passed doing what they love to do right climb Mm -hmm. climb and ski um but then you have the naysayers who kind of they don't have maybe that perspective that we have living in the mountains and doing these sports as a daily activity and and kind of painting it in as would say somewhat negative light or at least that's that's how they're justifying it to themselves Mm -hmm. um are you you familiar with joseph campbell and the hero's journey no so Joseph Campbell, he's, he's a mythologist, oh, okay. and he basically looked at, you know, some something along the lines of 250 myths, cross culture, cross time, cross demographics, and kind of established certain predictable storylines, you know, that you see in, you know, Star Wars and the Odyssey and the Matrix. And, you know, it's all these blueprints for the hero's journey, which everyone lives in their own context. Right. And his, the, the first step is, um, that people are, are, they experience a call to adventure or some type of yearning or call to action. Um, and his big thing is if you don't accept this calling, you kind of die inside as a human because that's who you, you were meant to be. Mm. And so I've always wondered, you know, when the, when people pass away and, and people say like, oh yeah, you know, yeah, that, that was noble or whatever. Or wasn't noble that they died doing what they love. And, but look what they left behind that, you know, they don't have the perspective to say like, yeah, but if that's what you're called to mm-hmm. do, mm-hmm. like you have to honor the person mm-hmm. doing it. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I agree. That's, I really, that's a very interesting perspective. Um, because I do believe that, you know, certain certain things kind of speak to you, um, to do, you know, mountain calls to you to go do this thing. You know, it's the Eiger definitely, you know, once I learned how to speed ride and realized that I had the missing link for doing a high speed radical descent down that mountain, I really wanted to do it. So you mentioned the word nobility. I think that's an interesting one because, um, it's it's all a matter of perspective what is and what is not mo- noble you know shane died uh, in his career right he was working he was performing that's what he did did for a living was he's he's a he's a performer an elite performer and um is that a noble thing to do to go to die at your profession um it would be considered noble for a cop to that died in a firefight or you know a soldier certainly it's noble for people defending our freedom you know it's all how you define nobility and um you know we as action sports athletes we're choosing to do these things i think it's not as noble as you know fighting for freedom and whatnot it's a it's kind of an interesting conundrum but it's all it's all your perspective
0: right and I think we should say, and I try to remind myself of this: we're still leading these amazingly privileged lives to be able to do these things. It's not like we're overseas, sure, know, in the yeah, trenches we're, fighting. You know?
1: That's exactly right. Yeah, we're we're recreationalists, right? You know, and we are all you know people who ski, in general, any form of it. You know, we're we're privileged individuals. You know, we're not poor. Um, you know, ski bums are ski bums, but they're still living a very rich lifestyle we're in that elite level of um, privilege and I think it should be recognized.
0: Right. Yeah. We're lucky.
1: We're very lucky.
0: Yeah. And I know it's, there's been plenty of press there about you losing two of your closest friends, Shane Mm -hmm. and and Timmy Dutton. Um, What did losing those two close friends, what did it teach you? Well, in
1: both cases, it's, it's one of these like, You always are faced with, you know, do you carry on um, with these activities given that you've had this firsthand experience of the pain and you're witnessing all the pain that's happening to all these people around you um, and people that you love and that love you. So it makes you question whether to continue or not. And um, in both cases, I decided to. Learn as much as possible from the experience, analyze it thoroughly and figure out what, what exactly led to this horrible outcome. Um, and then to carry on as a more experienced mountain man. I have not wingsuit ski base jumped since then. And I don't know that, I don't think anybody has. Uh, and I don't know that I ever will. Now that said, I've done terminal ski base jumps just without a wingsuit. Um... Like my Iger one with right. the tracking suit, um you know. And there's always this: Are you splitting hairs here? um What what activities are okay and what aren't? And Tim died skydiving. You know, skydiving in general is safer than uh, base jumping because you have two parachutes and you have higher altitude for your you know your jumping platform. And yeah, it's tough. You know, kind of redefining where to draw the line and. I have done that um, my own way, and you know I've also told people that if I had a kid, I probably would um, again reevaluate everything that I'm doing now. Doesn't mean I would quit certain things; it just means I'm going to take a close look at it.
0: Right, because you can never quit. These are what make you you and fulfill you yeah, as but a person. You can,
1: there's so many ways to have fun in this world. True. You know, yesterday I was going 11 miles an hour behind a boat on a surfboard. It was really fun and. It would have been challenging to kill myself. It's just, uh, it's there's a lot of ways to have fun, and I am, uh, you know, enjoying speed riding. It's also it's a sport that's um, kind of has that blossoming energy, uh, like skiing did in the late '90s. And I'm doing that more than ski base jumping because ski base jumping is gnarly, right? And cumbersome. It's a pain in the ass to get to the top of a mountain with you know your parachute and your shovel and your probe and all that crap,
0: right? <laughs> a lot going on yeah a yeah. lot of stuff well and it sounds like shane was very obviously influential for you in your youth mm-hmm. were you the same for timmy was it kind of a pay it forward yes thing?
1: tim was a protege of mine and i was a protege of shane so i've often said that if if it had been me that died in italy on march 26th of 2009 shane would have felt the same pain that i felt when tim died on april 25th of
0: 2014,
1: yeah, and it it was a pretty bad pain. I say I actually would say it hurt more to lose Tim.
0: Yeah. And do you do you wonder you know, such, you know magnanimous personalities, all three of you guys, you know why of the three you're, you're still here.
1: Luck, I think I think I just have to cut to answer it with that one one word. Sure. I mean i don't know it, if could have the right been, answer. it could have been it could have been me that day with shane i mean what we were doing was very aggressive you know ski off of a cliff and do a double backflip and then fly a wingsuit with ski boots on one parachute you know uh, there's there's no such thing as a freak wingsuit accident you know that's not a that's not a freak accident you know we're fucking charging right
0: um so, is it like a backcountry ski accident where you, there's so many red flags and you're just yeah, missing them? Or? no,
1: no, it's not like that. I mean, we we were really good and we 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 thought we had it and we thought it all checked out. Um, Shane had this perfect storm of bad circumstances. I mean, there was like seven factors that that um, led to that, and and some of them were very unlikely to occur he almost had it too i mean he did release his ski he just didn't it just didn't have enough altitude left right um so it uh i don't think that we were like ignoring red flags but it was a bold uh, a bold uh, bold objective i mean right. arnie backstrom bold objective right huge mountain in peru steep big you consequences know, big consequences yeah certainly mistakes equal equal death yeah um you know now kip and allison that's more more freak accident you know hang fire avalanche yeah you know two people who definitely had their act together and knew their stuff that I, I like i said i don't there's not there's no such thing as a freak wingsuit accident right
0: yeah well and i'm not i'm, I'm also you know it's fascinating for me to chat with such elite athletes right and all of you guys and women are, are these in my, my eyes, like these samurais, these devotion to this creed. And it's, I think it's um, super commendable and um, it has to be very self realizing too. But can, can you talk about that like ultra focus that you must have to have during these kind of high risk Mm -hmm. pursuits?
1: Yeah. I think that um, in high risk pursuits, the, The focus is really kind of built in and it's easy to attain, you know, physiologically or, you know, chemically or whatever, you know, when you have adrenaline going and you're in high stimulus environments, the frontal lobe of the the brain is really activated. It's firing and that's where your focus comes from and that's why ADD kids have a hard time focusing outside of those environments and that's why they take um, stimulants like Ritalin and Adderall. Um, and it works. Um, so I think that the focus is pretty easy to attain and it's actually kind of a luxury that, that, you know, you're able to have this intense focus and kind of tap into what people are calling flow states or whatever, yeah. um, where you perform really well. And that's, that's nice. It's a nice like byproduct of, of what we do is that you get to experience and see yourself performing at a high level. Um, whereas it, it's harder to, to focus on something that's more mundane Right. And, you know, I have to use different strategies to focus on things that are more mundane, you know, whether it's like having a completely clean desk, I have an hourglass there that I flip over and, you know, it's a sand timer and I'm like, I'm going to have this test done by the time that sand gets to the bottom, you know. And then I take a break and, you know, do some push-ups or, you know, stretch or go outside. Right. Um, And it's much harder to focus on those tests um, and you have to, you know whatever it is caffeine or whatever you're doing it's uh, it's more of an effort
0: right yeah as I kind of prepare for these chats it's always there's always this weird these weird epiphanies I have or you know just being outside and thinking about it and I was listening to a podcast and there's this I, I'm not religious by any means I'm reformed Catholic you know but you know this guy was saying that, the language of God is found in stillness and everything else is just a bad translation. And so I kind of thought about my own experiences in the mountains where you, you know, you just mentioned the flow state or whatever, which I think some of it's cosmic woo-woo and some of it's probably real stuff, you know? And it was just fascinating to me to think about, you know, whether there's snippets of that in your very fast, you know, adrenaline-driven, you know, sports, Mm -hmm. that focus, you know, where you have that your body goes on that autopilot yeah, and you're kind of having that out of body definitely experience.
1: autopilot occurs. I mean, I, that run, that first run of mine down the Eiger I'd rehearsed it in my head many times, but when it happened, it just happened. It was kind of a blur. Right. And I had stuck the snot out of it and I performed perfectly, but I kind of don't remember doing it. Wow. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do, I, I remember it. I can, I can see it right now, but, just in the moment, it just happened. Um, and that's, that's a cool feeling, too. Right. I, I love watching skiers slightly out of control. Uh-huh. When you see a skier that's suddenly they landed at a cliff and they're going way too fast. And, and now they're reacting and they're just kind of, they're functioning on their instincts rather than their cognitive thoughts, techniques out the window. And they're just ripping. You know, Bodie Miller was like that yeah. all the time. Half out of control and just fucking awesome to watch ski. Uh-huh. I mean, beautiful
0: right. performances. Because sometimes it ends beautifully and sometimes it yeah. doesn't, right? So,
1: yeah. Yeah. And if you're just like, wow, he pulled that off. You yeah. Know? Uh it's it's fun.
0: Wild. And it strikes me that you're like you're somewhat of a renaissance man. I mean, you're you have like these Hollywood good looks, you're super intelligent, you're obviously very athletic. Um, but what impresses me the most is that you, you've been able to stay relevant and kind of reinvent yourself in these shades. Where do you see your life going in the next 20 years?
1: Well, th- first of all, thank you for the compliments. Um, yeah, I wear a lot of hats professionally, and some of them don't have anything to do with high-risk activities. Um, I'm getting pretty regular speaking uh, engagements um, and corporate event hosting and also stunt coordinating and doing more things in 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 the Hollywood space because it's fun and I enjoy uh, the resources of it and you know you know back to the ego thing it's pretty cool to see yourself on a big screen you know know that in theaters everywhere people are watching yeah you're inspiring you, you people perform it's uh, I'd love I'm I'm working steadily at doing more of that and there's an off-road racing component that is kind of interesting you know, Polaris Razor and all these UTVs they're you know the dealerships worldwide you know if you're racing a trophy truck most people don't even know what a trophy truck is and um it really is something that only exists in southern california southern nevada and um, parts of arizona so suddenly there's a market for this um racing and it's uh you know people are getting some attractive sponsorships and you have a roll cage for safety um And it's a rush and it's something that lasts a very long time you you fly a wingsuit off a mountain it's over in a couple minutes um but you know just on friday i raced the las vegas to reno and you know for 12 hours i was on point in a race car yeah Yeah. you know constantly making decisions choosing lines and you know going 80 miles an hour 60 108 was my top speed um it's fun it's really fun
0: i love that about you that it you know, it's like J.T. Holmes, the skier and the aerial athlete. But then a lot of people don't even know about this. It's kind of like pro racing. It's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's,
1: been my, it's, it's been a bit of a closet sport for decades. And, uh, you know, this uh, this race, I went and just did it with my dad. Um, and I think it might have been his last race. And I just decided that, you know, not that the GoPro takes away from it at all, but I just decided we'd do this one just fully for the experience. I just didn't even document it. Cool. didn't post anything and talk it yeah it's just like uh screw it i'm just gonna go rip this one with my dad and and it's pretty uh, special have fun and man i sure regret not having a gopro because that sunset was unbelievable <laughs> it was so gorgeous right. i mean it was it was it was raining at times so there was these dark clouds and then you know the dark ominous clouds when the sun's low and lighten them up from beneath it's just purple and i mean it was so gorgeous and um I wish I hadn't been some kind of like soul bro on that one because it would have been cool
0: to have a camera, right? Well, maybe that was why you got it too, right? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, maybe. Yeah, the world works in fun God, ways. it was cool. It was yeah. so beautiful, and yeah. it's you know you're just you're just covering ground. I mean, for, it was a 539 mile race. I ra- I I raced 400 of it, just seeing beautiful parts of the desert and wild horses, and, and it was just you know so you're just cool. out there. It was really cool, you know? with your dad, no less. Yeah. yeah. Well, he drives and then I drove. Right. So we weren't in the car together, but okay. um,
0: it's still an experience we had together. So Team activity. Yeah. That's rad. Yeah. Where would you be if skiing and aerial pursuits and driving cars weren't an option? I wanted to be a firefighter. I was actively pursuing that as
1: my career, if my ski career didn't happen. Um, I, you know, I did the EMT basic and I did controlled burns and I was you know just taking I was on that path to be firefighter paramedic and I think it would have been really cool yeah you know i look at alan riley who's an amazing skier and and helicopter ski guide and i mean i was skiing with him this spring very hard to keep up with
0: that guy's a beautiful skier beautiful skier yeah
1: unreal and and i mean just it, his legs just have they just keep going, man. Right. I, I, I couldn't keep up. I was consistently falling behind. It was right. pretty cool. Yeah. And he's got a decade on
0: me, I think. Yeah,
1: I would have wanted to be Alan Riley. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> right on, What we'll to tell him. What are three inf- influential books you've read? I, I like the
1: survival genre. Um, you know, I love uh, Shackleton's Voyage, um, Endurance, they call it. And then one of my favorite books is called The Long Walk by Slavomir Rawis. Um, you know, Prison Break, and then they walked through Siberia, and then the Gobi Desert, and then through the Himalaya—just badass survival tale. Yeah. As far as influential books, I don't know. I really don't know.
0: Well, I think those—I'm those not are, that deep right? of a guy. Yeah. You know. I think you are, man. <laughs> I don't know. Like just, just talking to you, yeah. just, you know. There's depth there. For sure. I, I
1: keep things simple. I try to keep things simple. Yeah. Um, a clean desk is good. Cleanliness, yeah. Aside from like, I say I keep it simple, but then I did a very complicated run down the Eiger. That was an interesting <laughs> one. I I thought to myself at a certain point, this is either the most glorious thing I've done or the most like horrible act of indecisiveness. Because so many people just said to me, well, "Why don't you just you know choose one sport and do it that day? You know, you can speed ride the top of the, from the top of the Eiger, and then you can wingsuit it, and then you can um, you know go ski something cool too." Right, but.
0: You wouldn't be i wouldn't be able to ski the eiger that's for sure but, but i think all those those personal struggles right yeah. i mean i try to remind myself of this working with the public every day you know that everyone's on their own trip you know and mm-hmm. everyone's got something going on it's not easy for anybody mm-hmm. and these stories of struggle and personal growth i think really resonate with a lot of people in our mm-hmm. circles you know let alone people at large I can learn from them. I read a
1: book uh, just the other day called A Higher Loyalty by James Comey, um, FBI director fired by Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought it was really good. Um, and I thought it it, it had um, some really good, good ethic insights into um, ethical behavior. And I'd say that's a, a good influential book. <laughs> yeah, an influential book for me was, I guess, recently that one just because... Um, you know, you can kind of think back of you know his thought processes and evaluating what's ethical and what's non-ethical, almost like risk analysis criteria, where you're you're thinking of someone's thought process of, of um, when they you know tackle these gnarly things. Like, you know, I read books about these mountaineers going up gnarly spots. Like, think about Jimmy Chin and Renan and Conrad on Mount Meru, and it's like that decision to. After you're out of food and you're soaking wet and you're freezing cold to, and the sun comes out to go up instead of down, you know, I find it really interesting to read about, you know, read these books and, and, and kind of put yourself in, in their mind to try to imagine that decision of going up, whereas all survival instinct would be to go down. Right. Um, and so, you know, then James Comey is in these really weird predicaments as a lawyer and as the director of the FBI and he's you know evaluating not life or death but you know what the right thing to do
0: is right and it's kind of cool right it's an age-old thing do the do the right thing right um but we got to land this plane but what are you what are you most proud of what am i most proud of yeah i'm a good friend right on (laughs) yeah it's vital
1: yeah and simple
0: sweet Yeah, well thanks Yeah dude, thanks for coming Mm -hmm. Definitely super grateful Likewise Thanks for
1: the opportunity And thanks for being flexible
0: I sincerely enjoyed chatting With an open and unfiltered J.T. Holmes Season 2 continues on Friday, November 9th With notable high altitude mountaineer Adrian Ballinger Adrian is our first repeat guest. He returns to tell an inspiring story of failure and ultimate success in his attempt to climb Mount Everest without supplemental oxygen. Afterglow is recorded at the Pink Palace studio on the west shore of Lake Tahoe and is produced by myself and Kristen Hanna. Our sound engineer for the episode was Miles Heaps, edited by Kristen Hanna. The music in Season 2 is courtesy of the Cowboys Fiddle. Make sure to check them out on Instagram.
1: What are you talking about? What did I do? The last chorus, it goes A minor, C, G, D. Yeah, but there's no D there. But we did it on that one. I'm sorry, there's no D on the paper, so I didn't do it.